get it up. Okay, let's, uh, good morning. Okay, let's uh, open up with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, again, we thank you for this uh, morning together, Lord, where we can gather together to study your word. Father, we ask that in the next, uh, over the course of the next hour, Father, that you would help us to um, understand how the Old Testament hangs together, Father, as one, as one story ultimately pointing to uh, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that... Um, the words of my mouth, Lord, would be uh, edifying and clarifying for your children here, Lord. And um, I pray that anything that is unhelpful or distracting, Father, would pass away. Lord, so we just uh, give you this time so that you would be honored in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, um, first thing I want to do is just kind of give a review of where we were so then we can kind of set where we are in context. Um, and um, firstly, we started out with talking about how the Old Testament is one story. It's one story that um, about the kingdom of God, essentially. And about God's uh, rule coming down to earth so that the earth, um, the earth would reflect his reign just as the heavens themselves do. Right? So we use the Lord's Prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as kind of the model for what the kingdom looks like. So God places Adam in the garden. He gives him the commission to, um, to rule over it, right, to multiply, have dominion over the earth. And this was uh, originally God's plan, that the kingdom would come to a historical progress, or process rather, um, by which image bearers of God would have dominion over the earth. And that uh, original plan, you could say, was sidetracked by what the fall narrative of Genesis chapter 3, right? where Adam essentially repudiates his role as a king, he repudiates his role as a priest, he re- and he fails to function as a, um, as a husband that puts his wife and his uh, first, right? protecting her from the wiles of the serpent, if you will. Right? So we start with Adam. Right? Um, <coughs> After the fall narrative of Genesis 3, and kind of making large jumps here, we notice that things get progressively worse. Right? Until the story with Noah, where there's, um, there's a, uh, a worldwide flood. And then, um, even after that, when you think, okay, well now there's only the righteous family uh, remains. Uh, as history progresses, things get bad again, continuously get worse again, until you get to the, the Tower of Babel narrative. And where there's this unified uh, affront to God's command to uh, spread out and, and fill the earth. And they say, no, we're going to settle here, we're going to make a tower, we're going to make a name for ourselves. Okay. And uh, Genesis chapter 12, I argued, was a major turning point in redemptive history, the call of Abraham. This call is one man and his family. Now, it's really only him and... Um, his wife at this point, but the promise is that he's going to make him into a great nation. Right? So he starts off with this one man, this one family, um, and he says, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to increase uh, your numbers, that is, your descendants, and that you're going to be essentially a conduit by which I bless you, and, and through you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Um, but I believe it's in Genesis uh, 15, where God establishes a covenant, he says... But this isn't going to happen quickly. Um, there's going to come a time where your descendants are going to be held captive for 400 years. And after that, I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to discipline the nation that did this to them. So that leads us to the book of Exodus in which we have this entire, um, this, this word of God unfolding historically. And so whereas um, with Abraham, God's dealing with one man and his family as he moved to the book of Exodus, you have now God dealing with a nation. That is to say, um, one way of looking at this is that God's command, especially his promise to Abraham to multiply him, is happening. So it's not just the family now. They're numerous, and they filled Egypt. And this is one of the reasons why the Pharaoh feared them. There were so many of them. They were multiplying and filling the land. So, um, they are taken into bondage, and God delivers them. And they said that we should see this and understand this in light of that promise in Genesis 3.15, 
um, in the context of God cursing the serpent for deceiving Adam and Eve. He says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed, that is the serpent seed, and the woman's seed, the seed of the woman. And um, you can trace this idea, this enmity between these two seeds, which you'll see um, might pop up once or twice on the outline. Uh, this idea of seed theology. I'm simply talking about the outworking of Genesis 3.15 throughout the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, so that's what I mean by seed theology. And in the, uh, the enslavement, the captivity, I said we should see this in light of the seed theology. That it is the seed of the serpent as embodied by Egypt and its powers oppressing and wanting to destroy the seed of the woman. At this point in salvation history is represented by Jacob's family, right? the, Israel, the nation. And, and God's deliverance in the event of the Exodus becomes this, this model, this paradigm um, of God's deliverance from enslavement. Right? And throughout the Old Testament, it's repeatedly referenced that if God says, I'm going to do something great, he says, like the Exodus, or when he says, after the time of the exile, he says, it's going to be so great what I do, you won't even remember the Exodus anymore. The, he, oh, the Exodus is always used as this kind of model of God's great redemptive salvation uh, work. <coughs> and I essentially broke down this, this unit between Exodus and Deuteronomy on these three themes. You had the, um, the Exodus event, and I'm sticking to the outline here. Um, you had the Exodus event, right? which is God showing uh, Yahweh's faithfulness to Abraham, and he's going to, just as he said, bring them into the land, and he's going to uh, take them out of the land in which they were enslaved. We have the giving of the law, right, in which God reveals who he is, and, um, and gives them instructions on how to live as recipients of God's grace. Right? And we talked about that in terms of a suzerain vassal treaty, this, this kind of treaty between unequal parties, and lastly, we talked about the, um, the idea of the, the instructions and the building of the tabernacle itself. Right? And we said in these three movements, what you find is that uh, God the creator is God the deliverer. And each movement, he's moving closer and closer and deeper and deeper in relationship with his people. Right? So first he brings them to himself, then he reveals who he is, and then in the last step he comes and he lives with them in the tabernacle. Right? <laughs> And the book of Deuteronomy um, is this second generation of Israelites who have come out of uh, Egypt. Right? So it's not the original people. Right? They have been judged. God has actually um, judged them for their hard-heartedness and their rebellion. They're always looking back to Egypt, reframing their own history and saying, it was so good back then. And he realizes that their hearts are still in Egypt, though their bodies are out of Egypt. And um, they are not allowed to enter into the promised land, the land that he promised to Abraham. Right? So it is instead their children, which commonly called, we call the Joshua generation, the second generation that's going to go into the land. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is representing the law and, and instructing them so that they know their responsibilities um, according to the covenant as they go into the land. Um, now, and we looked, I believe it was um, Deuteronomy 28, where we talked about the blessings and the curses of the covenant. Right? If you obey, these are the good things that will happen. If you disobey and you show that you're ungrateful and that you're still, um, that you're thinking along the lines of those who are the seeds of the serpent, um, then these are the curses that will come upon you. Now, if you will, turn with me to uh, Deuteronomy uh, 31. This is uh, shortly before uh, Moses dies. And um, what's in, what's in, what is interesting is before this, when the Lord is, when Moses um, is pronouncing the blessings and the, and the curses of the covenant, what you have is that the people repeatedly say, yeah, we'll do it. You know, we, we, we love Yahweh and He has saved us and we're going to stick to the covenant. And they repeatedly affirm that they are committed to this covenant relationship with their Savior and Deliverer. Um, now, in Deuteronomy 31, starting in verse 14, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Um, 
Then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. The Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your fathers, and these people uh, will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. On that day I will become angry with them and forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them, and on that day they will ask, Have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all their uh, wickedness and turning to other gods. So this isn't a good sign. Right? This is the end of Moses' life. They're about to go into the land. These people have sworn up and down that they are committed to the covenant. And in a secret uh, meeting, right, this uh, one-on-one meeting with uh, Moses and uh, the Lord, he says, you're going to pass away. And the moment you're out of the picture, these people are going to do the very things that they said they weren't going to do. And he uses strong language. They're going to prostitute themselves before the other gods. Right? Um, so now, turn over to uh, Joshua here. This is this is Elias where we we should have been last week, but we didn't cover it, and it's okay because it actually kind of serves good bookends um, before the class is done. Well, we're starting now. The people going into the land, they'll be out of the land before we're done. Um, so, the book of Joshua ser- uh, serves as uh, the beginning, the very beginning of and. and kind of um, fancy academic parlance is called the Deuteronomistic History. And essentially what that means is, um, and the way I'm using it is is kind of bracketing from Joshua to, I'll I'll say, 2 Chronicles. That's the way I'm using it here. And from Joshua to 2 Chronicles, this unit of the history of Israel, is essentially the outworking of the covenant established or, or reiterated in Deuteronomy. So I say, okay, Moses has given the laws to this generation that's going into the land. Now let's see how this plays out. So that's what I mean by the Deuteronomistic history. Deuteronomy casts a large shadow over this um, period of time. Now one thing you want to note is, uh, this is uh, Roman numeral 2b on the outline, is that Joshua serves as a kind of new Moses. The Lord repeatedly says to him, um, and just to show you one time, leaves in 3.3, um, well, let's start now. Let's start in three seven. Uh, and the Lord said to Joshua, "Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that so they may know that I am with you, as I was with Moses." Right. So there's no uh, downgrading of authority between in this transition from Moses to Joshua. Uh, Yahweh uh, affirms that He is with him just as He was with Moses. And one of the ways that this is demonstrated is one of the great acts of deliverance in the Exodus itself was the parting of the Red Sea. Well, in the same, uh, in a similar manner, when uh, Joshua, they're going into the land, I believe the Jordan, that actually gets parted as well. So it shows, okay, this wasn't going to be just unique to Moses because I'm with you like I was with Moses. And he demonstrates that, and, and that's a pretty clear way of getting that point across. Um, in Joshua chapter 5, so I'll stick with the first couple of chapters just to, um, stuff happens pretty quickly. Um, jo- Joshua chapter 5. Can somebody read uh, 5 2 to verse 5? Joshua 5 2 through 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites in Kiriath Aralah. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. Okay, thanks, Tim. Um, so Joshua is... Um, He's holding before them this this kind of covenant uh, ritual, right? the the sign that's given uh, to the people, uh, the, the, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant becomes circumcision as making these people distinct from the other nations, and uh, the generation that was born during this uh, this Exodus period 
were not circumcised. They did not receive the sign of this covenant that they're in union with God. God is about to give them the land that is tied to the covenant with Abraham. Meanwhile, they don't bear that sign that identifies them as belonging with this God. So um, That seems odd, because I mean, I thought they, from Abraham, they, I thought they always circumcised Well, yeah, that prayed. was the goal. And since you have to, and this happens throughout the whole Old Testament, you have to hold up and oftentimes contrast the ideal with what actually happened. It's kind of like um, the, the laws of the year of Jubilee. Right? So we can read in the Bible the year of Jubilee and debts were canceled and land was returned. And um, I think the majority of Old Testament scholars would say we have no documentation that it ever actually happened. Like that they ever actually obeyed and carried it out. And, um, so yeah, the, the covenant sign was that circumcision was going to be uh, the sign given to all the males as identifying them. And even if we want to be generous and say that they were up to the point of captivity in Egypt, even up to the generation that was uh, taken out of Egypt, this other generation did not receive it. So just to, at the very least, the generation that we're speaking of here was not given that sign. Meanwhile, they were the generation that was a- were actually going to inherit those promises. Right? Even yeah. Moses' son. Yeah. He was about to be killed because he was not circumcised. Yeah, and that's a good point. The angel of death is going to come and is going to strike Moses' own son. Right? So it shows that Yahweh is serious about this covenant. It's not, a, it's not just kind of a memorial thing. It's God takes this incredibly serious. So when they're going into the land, um, they need to identify. They need to both identify with Yahweh and the covenant that he's made with Abraham. Um, now, and, um, this is a C in Yahweh. Is really referring to uh, the outworking of the covenant. Jericho and AI is chapter six and seven. This uh, interesting test case and how uh, things play out uh, from what was spoken about in Deuteronomy. The people go in. We are most of us are probably familiar with the story of Jericho. Um, God gives them these incredibly counterintuitive, counter cultural instructions on how to take the city. The city, like many ancient Near Eastern cities, was a walled city. So you could only get into one area. So if you're going to storm the city, um, that's where all the armies are waiting for you. Right? So you, you get, they, uh, it's kind of the funnel way, entrance into the city. So God gives them these instructions on circling the city right, and marching around. And uh, enchanting and once once a day for seven days, and on the final day you go around several times, and then you're gonna loud, uh, let out a loud chant. You're not even gonna touch the city. No, no pick is going to hit the wall, and the Lord Himself, Yahweh, will give you the city. Yahweh was going to, and it says that the walls fell down flat. Right? Um, so the Lord has shown that He is giving the city. The walls are. Uh, fall down, the city's now essentially naked and exposed, so they can go in and they, they rob the city and they take it successfully. Right? They follow the Lord's instructions. Um, that's in chapter uh, 6. And it starts in uh, 5.13, but it continues on to 6. In Genesis 7, um, rather, uh, in uh, Joshua 7, you have this contrasting story with uh, going to the city of Ai. Right? And in this case... They're specifically told that AI is under the ban. And the ban essentially says, means that when you go into this city, you are, um, you are to uh, take nothing for yourselves. Right? Normally, you, know, you have to, the victor goes the spoils. Well, in this case, God is saying this, this city is under the ban. You get nothing. Everything is dedicated to destruction. Right? And um, they go into the city... And um, essentially, they wind up losing. They wind up being routed themselves, and they have to flee. And they say, well, why in the world did this happen? Right? We just took this other city that had walls, and we took it, piece of cake, the Lord delivered it into our hands, and now we go to this other city, and um, kind of same thing, and we're defeated. And it comes to be revealed to them, uh, let's see here, um, that the Lord, uh, they say, we're going to gather together, present ourselves before the Lord, and we're going to find out why this happened. So, in 7, uh, 7.14, Joshua 7.14, you start seeing this little unit here and following. Um, God, they, they, cast, uh, they cast lots, and they say, we're going to find out who did this, what's, who's responsible for this. So, essentially, the Lord calls them forward. 
right? Uh, tribe by tribe, and, and one tribe is singled out. Then clan by clan, family by family, and lastly, man by man, individual by individual. Until uh, a man by the name of Achan is selected, and um, he's then asked, now, give glory to God, tell the truth, what happened here? Because the Lord singled you out as being responsible for why um, you can imagine countless people died in battle and why we've been defeated here. And Achan essentially, um, he admits that in the process of going into the city, he saw uh, some wedges of gold and he, and he desired them and he took them. Right? So he was unfaithful to the covenant there. He, was, he violated the ban. Right? And as a result... Um, one of the curses for disobedience in the covenant, they were defeated in battle. Right? Um, you can classify, generally speaking, some of the, um, the curses of the covenant, uh, the covenant made with Israel, under uh, the curses um, in nature and war, right? and all the kind of things that fall under that. But generally speaking, so if you have drought and famine and those kinds, those would be classified as curses that fall under um, nature, and then you have you know things like People dying in battle, and your sons and daughters being taken to slavery, and nothing, and you, you starving and having to eat your children, or something. These would be the conditions, uh, the the negative conditions that happen in the context of war. So those are the general um, categories of curses, nature and war. And um, so Achan is brought forth, and eventually he's identified as the one who's the covenant breaker, bringing down this curse. And he's stoned. And it's actually not just him. It's him and his family. They're all, they're all stoned. Um, and this is one example, and it happens both positively and both negatively in, uh, throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Um, this principle of what, what's theologically called federal headship, or, or, or you can think of it in terms of covenant leadership, right? where one person is responsible, right? the, the activities of one person... Um, whether it's blessing or curse, but whether it's blessing or judgment, comes upon those whom he represents. So it's true in the case of Adam, right? All those united to Adam, when he dies spiritually, he has no life to give to his progeny. So they are born spiritually then hostile to God as well. Um, in the case of Achan, he is the representative of his own family. We'll see this again shortly in David, in one of the, the two great sins of David's uh, um, reign as king. In the taking of the census, right, he, he essentially is relying on his own strength to protect him. One of those things that was forbidden in Deuteronomy 17 uh, for the king, the laws for the king. And um, God gives him various options. But the whole point is, is whatever option you take, is his sin is going to affect others. Right? And, um, and you have a positive example, of course, in the New Testament. Right? Whereas... Um, Jesus takes the covenant curse for us. He's our covenant head. And uh, the blessings that he wins on our behalf are then applied to us. So you have this theme, you have this theme of, of kind of covenant, federal headship or a covenant leadership principle working out. And this is one example here. And uh, so the, uh, the disease is essentially rooted out. You have Achan is judged and his family is, is judged. And they go back Essentially, in the rematch, and they go back into AI, and because they're obedient this time, God once again gives them the land. And um, because it doesn't matter on the fighting, the fighting man, and how good they are, right? It's ultimately the battle belongs to the Lord. He's if he wants uh, to judge them, it doesn't matter how good the fighting men are. He's going to deliver them into the hands of the enemies. And once they show obedience and faithfulness to the covenant, he delivers. Uh, their enemies into their hand. Now let's turn over to uh, 22. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, chapter 10, verse 22. And this is an interesting little passage here. Um, on first reading, it just seems like kind of ancient barbarity. But uh, once again, when you think about it theologically... This um, it helps, especially in terms of seed theology. Um, Joshua and his and his um, soldiers take essentially five Amorite kings and they defeat them in battle. And um, the the kings flee and they find them. And um, 
I believe they find him in a cave, and in verse 22, Joshua 10, 22, we read, Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings to me. So they brought the brought out the five kings uh, out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. Uh, when they had brought these five kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who, who had come with them, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings, so they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Okay. Anybody have any idea of why I'm tying that to, why I said seed theology in Genesis 3.15? Fight your heel and crush your head. There we go. Right. So the promise is, is that the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Right. And here you have this kind of, this idea that um, Joshua remembers this. It's in his mind. It frames the way he sees this holy war. And he says, as we're coming into the land and God is giving us this land that he promised to Abraham, uh, we remember this and symbolically we're saying, look, it's happening. The process is unfolding. Right? The, we are crushing the head of the serpent. Um, so that's why he talked about the uh, seed theology there. And... Um, Two more points, and then we'll get out of um, Joshua here, who referred to the entrance in the land. Uh, 12, Je- Joshua 12 is, is interesting, because you'll start from verse, um, well, I'll start in verse 7, 12, 7. These are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of Jordan, from Baal uh, Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, and he describes this land. And then verse 9, the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai near Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. And he gives you this entire list of 31 kings. Essentially this this checklist. So you say, the king of Hebron, check. What are the kings that we've routed? What what are the kingdoms and the land that have been delivered to us? Let's go through the the list. The king of Jarmuth, check. Yeah, one, we got him. And this is a testimony to Yahweh's faithfulness. He is giving them the land. Right? The Israelites were not the most numerous, they weren't the most powerful, etc. But the Lord is in, uh, in faithfulness to His covenant with Abraham, He's giving them the land. So you have the last, uh, last couple of words there in the end of chapter 12, where it says 31 kings in all. The Lord has successfully um, given these people into their hand. Um, last sections of uh, Joshua, essentially the allotting of the land. So sometimes it can be a little tedious to read for, for people who don't have that vested interest in, in saying, this is my land being uh, divvied up here. Um, but all the land, the land is um, separated and divided amongst the twelve tribes, so everyone has a, a portion, um, with the exception of the Levites, whose portion is God himself. And um, so they're into the land, and we in Genesis, uh, Joshua 24... Starting in verse. Um, actually, I want to go back for one second here. Just, let's actually let's look here. Just turn back one one um, verse to Joshua twenty three because this is important. See how Joshua understood it, how the ancient Israelites understood the promises of God to Abraham, and um, twenty three fourteen. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, right? So he's saying, I'm about to die soon. You know that with all your heart and your soul, uh, that not one of all the good promises the Lord has given you has failed. Every promise has been uh, fulfilled. Not one has failed. So Joshua, the entire book, becomes a testimony to God's faithfulness to his covenant. In 24, he holds a uh, covenant renewal ceremony again. Because right? this is the thing, is that, and we, we find this repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, is um, you have the leaders stressing faithfulness to God, always stressing, especially towards the end of the life. And then yeah, the gung-ho, and yes, you know, great party, covenant renewal, and then they die, and things go awry again. Right? As soon as the leader is uh, out of the picture, right, things, uh, essentially the Israelites uh, go their own way. Uh, so Joshua is stressing that to be faithful to the covenant. So in 24, you find these uh, famous uh, verses here. 
in um, starting in verse uh, 14, 24-14. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods that your forefathers, your forefathers worshipped beyond the river in Egypt, says, uh, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Okay, so he's, he's saying, don't be lukewarm. Listen, if you're going to be a pagan, and you're going to be a covenant breaker, don't pretend like you're in a relationship with Yahweh. And just serve those gods. But if you're going to serve Yahweh, then stick to the covenant and be faithful. And, and then, of course, he says, as for me, I'm going to be faithful with my family. Um, and then they reply in verse 16, and the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. Um, and again at the end of 18, we too will serve the Lord because He is our God. And, jo- and Joshua says, the pe- uh, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to, the, to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not for- forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end to you uh, after He has been good to you. So if that's kind of in a nutshell, similar to what uh, Moses said at the end of his life. He's like, listen, serve the Lord, but just remember that um, this covenant business is serious. And if you forsake the covenant, it wasn't in fine print. It was in, it was in top. It was above the line. All the covenant stuff is going to happen to you. Um, so, we end there with, once again, testimony to God's faithfulness. Um, and verse uh, 24, 32 Interesting little book end there. Because if you end Genesis, um, Joseph in Genesis, one of his, uh, his requests is that his bones not be buried in Egypt. Right? He, he himself had, before his eyes, the promise given to Abraham. He said, no, I, want you, I don't want you to bury me here. This is not really my land. This is not really my home. I want you to bury me in the place where God has promised uh, our forefathers. Right? And in verse 32, Joshua 24, 32, and Joseph's bones, with the Israelites, uh, which the Israelites had uh, brought up from Egypt, were buried in Shechem, in the tract of land that Jacob brought for a hundred pieces of silver. Okay, so, a nice little book end there. Start in Genesis, ends in Joshua. Um, so, the people in the land, and um, now you have this again. Now they're in the land. Now, how are they going to live once they're in the land? And um, now this is going down to a Roman numeral. Uh, Three, the enthronement part, we're transitioning to the next major section. Um, this will probably be the largest jump we make in Scripture. Um, we find through the book of Judges uh, and in the very beginning of 1 Samuel uh, what, one, what one commentator has called the canonization of Israel. Right? They're now in the land, and instead of um, acting and uh, worshiping and behaving distinct from the people around them, they wind up assimilating. They wind up acting essentially just like them. Instead of them being a light to the nations by which people say, I want to know your God, they wind up looking at the gods of the other nations and say, I want to know your gods. Right? So it's the, uh, the canonization of Israel and um, Judges is just this downward spiral. It's, it's practically um, almost anything bad you can say about <laughs> the people's behavior in the book of Judges is true and things get from bad to worse. And there's this refrain throughout the book that says, in those days they didn't have a king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Instead of doing what was right in the eyes of, of Yahweh, their king, um, they did whatever was uh, seemed right and pragmatic in their own eyes. And um, some have argued that essentially this theme of them not having a king is kind of this um, implicit way of saying what would fix this problem is a king. Right? If we had some kind of stability and order, um, this nonsense that's going on through the book of Judges would probably be remedied. Right? Um, and so that's my little one-minute explanation of Judges. Things went bad towards the canonization of Israel. And as you start in the book of uh, First Kings, you have the, re- the, the request for a king. Right? We talked about this a little last week when we talked about... Um, how it wasn't so much simply their request, their request for a king that was uh, wrong, that was a rejection of God as their king, but is that they wanted a king like the other nations. 
And when you look at the, the laws for the king in Deuteronomy 17, and the description of what the king of Israel was supposed to uh, be like, um, you realize that their king was supposed to be the opposite of the kings of the other nations. It was a very countercultural model of, um, of monarchy. So God says to Saul, who's the last of the judges, and, and kind of this transitional figure between the judges and the kings, he says, they're not, re- uh, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me as the king. They don't like the way I rule. And essentially, he gives them Saul, who's a Benjamite. And if you read the last couple of chapters in the book of Judges, you realize that the last thing that they should have, uh, last person they should have chosen is a Benjamite. Um, but, um, and Saul is essentially the embodiment of all their false ideals of what a king should be like. So the one that um, is immediately highlighted is that uh, that Saul is a head taller than everyone else. So you want to associate the king with someone who's mighty and powerful and can lead us into battle and deliver us. Well, what is the way we can immediately see this? Well, he's big. He's tall. He looks strong. Right? Surely he's the guy who should lead us. Right? And notice it's one of those things, again, they're looking for the external signs. Right, that any other pagan nation around Israel would have also looked for. Um, this is why eventually when, um, when the Lord sent Samuel to find a replacement um, for, uh, Sam, uh, for Saul, rather, he, and even Samuel himself, when uh, he comes to Jesse, David's father, and he's being presented with all these boys, and he says, oh, surely he's, the, he's good-looking, he's tall, surely he's the one that God's going to choose. And the Lord says, no, 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 Samuel, you're buying into the, to the lie as well. I'm not looking for externals, I'm looking for the heart. Right? And once again, so Saul is the embodiment of the false ideals of what a king should be like, that Israel has. Um, and he shows that he is not a man after God's own heart. Um, he, there's a number of things that he does... Uh, uh, two, two of the kind of bigger sins, uh, two of the things that stand out, like David has two sins that define his reign, and Saul has his. And one is that um, Saul um, is told to. Um, I'm forgetting where it was now. The um, he, he's given a nation. He's told to uh, destroy it and kill everyone. Once again, this this kingdom is under the ban. Essentially, remember that. So everything and destroy their animals. Yeah, destroy the animals. Everything, right? Um, this is God. God is using Saul and he's using the the, the, the armies of Israel to be his meth, his uh, weapon, his instrument of judgment upon this nation. And um, Saul goes in and, and they kill everyone. They take their they they come back to Samuel and uh, and Saul says, "I did everything that you said. I did everything that the Lord commanded." And Sam and Samuel says, "Wait a minute, but what is that?" What's that bleeding that I hear? He says, oh yeah, well, I did one even better, actually. I got all of the animals so we could offer them to the Lord. And I took the king, too. Right? I got the king, too. Look, I'm delivering him to you. Right? And um, Samuel is, is, then, is, is outraged because he's realizing the Lord gave you a directive. These people were under the ban. You can't top God. You can't say I've done one better than what God suggested. And he himself uh, kills the king. And uh, once again, um, it shows that his, his um, soul's heart is not in the right place. And another is when, in the middle of battle, um, Samuel instructed Saul to wait for his appearance so that he would go and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. He would mediate. And one of the things you realize in the history of Israel is that um, essentially never did these streams cross between the king acting like a priest and the priest acting like a king. That's why people like Melchizedek are unique. And that's why it's unique in the New Testament for them to say, Jesus is the king and the priest. Because in the history of Israel, these things were distinct. And uh, Saul, in the heat of battle, does not wait for Samuel. He offers up the sacrifice. And sometimes I actually laugh reading this because it's almost like Samuel has a tendency of showing up just right after the sin was... So, um, so he, he offers sacrifice in the way it's recounted in the Bible. Samuel just shows up and says... Couldn't you wait for me? Right? And he, he tears Saul's garment. He says, just as this garment is being torn from you, the kingdom's going to be torn from you and given to another. And the Lord from there sends him out to find someone else. 
and sends him to this uh, farmer Jesse and, and selects David. <coughs> um, okay. Um, so I'm, I'm using these three terms: history, holiness, history, holiness, and hope. Um, holiness here for this is three um, B. The reign of a godly king governed by God's righteous law would attract the nations. And we see an example in the case of Solomon's reign where the queen of Sheba comes and she says, wow, I heard you were wise. I heard that things were happening here, but now that I've come and I've seen it with my own eyes, I realize that it far outstrips even my expectations, even what I've heard. And I said it would attract the nations and it would mark out Israel as distinct. Can I ask a question? Sure. I read Deuteronomy 17, and it said don't accumulate large amounts of gold or silver. But I think that was one of the things that attracted yeah, there was, a, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to say her motives were absolutely pure. <laughs> but uh, but it's one of those things where, um, one of the things, if I can recall correctly, that she says is the wisdom I've, I've heard. Right? Not just the splendor, which is certainly there, especially during Solomon's reign, um, but also the wisdom that he exercised and the various tales that are told about his wisdom. And um, this was God-given, God-received wisdom that he had in applying the law in difficult cases, like the case of the baby. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that, you know, suddenly everything was hunky-dory and everybody, you know, fell down and worshipped the Lord. But certainly it was attracting, it was attracting people um, that would then give a platform for coming to know the God of Israel. Um, so one thing you realize is that the, the reign of David and Solomon David and succeeding son Solomon are essentially of the high points of Israel's national history. Right? I think it was the first week that I said the kingdom of God you can think of as one author says is one definition is God's people in God's place under God's rule. Right? So here you have and during the reign of David and Solomon God's people, Israel, his, his covenant people in God's place, the land that he has given uh, he promised to Abraham they take it by Joshua. Now they're settled into it. Um, they're in God's place under God's rule. Right? In, in obedience to the covenant under a king that serves the Lord and implements his law. Yeah. Um, now I didn't put it in here. And I should have. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I did. Um, is that, uh, this is the last C, hope. Uh, the rule of God's people at this stage in history, is mediated, that is, it comes in two ways. His rule is mediated through the temple, and the priestly, the priestly services, and the Davidic king, the Davidic covenant. So, uh, king and priests. Right? Now, in uh, 2 Samuel 7, you might want to make a note of this. 2 Samuel 7, you have what we call the Davidic covenant. Now, it's not actually called a covenant here, like there's no way, um, but when it's reflected upon Psalm 89, that's where you explicitly find the idea that yes, what God was doing with David, the relationship he established, the promises he gave, were a covenant with David. And um, David, after reclaiming um, the ark during um, the beginning of 1 Samuel, was taken essentially into captivity, was taken out of the land, the ark of the covenant that represented God's presence. Um, he's taken out of the land and David eventually gets it back and brings it into the land. He says, okay, essentially symbolically speaking, um, God is back in the land. Now what I need to do is, um, I'm living in this amazing uh, uh, palace and what I, and this is an embarrassment for the human king, the representative, the vice region of, of God, to be living in this great cedar palace and meanwhile God's just living in this rickety tent, the tabernacle. So I'm going to build him a house. I'm going to make him a, a temple, right, in order to honor his name. And he tells this to um, uh, the prophet uh, Nathan. And Nathan at first says, that's a great idea. Go and do that. Right? And the Lord then reveals to Nathan, and Nathan relays it to David. No, you know what? That's not what I want. And he says, David, did I ever ask in all those years when we were traveling through the wilderness in the tabernacle, did I ever ask for, did I ever say, hey, guys, I'm uncomfortable. Please build me a house. He says, no, um, you're not going to build me a house. And he says, I'm going to build you a house. And there's this play in words on the Hebrew word buy it for house. Because David means an actual structure, right? a temple. I'm going to build you a house. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house as in a dynasty. 
the house of David. And he says, now, um, you are going to have, essentially, an eternal succession of kings coming from your line. You will, he said, you will never fail to have a king. Um, let's see here. Have it. Um, verse 7, 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish my throne, uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, the floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so he's, David's not going to be building the, uh, the temple. It's going to be his son, which we know as Solomon. And he's going to have an eternal kingdom. And that David's line is going to be... Um, internal kingdom. Now interestingly, just just a little aside here, there's two ways essentially of fulfilling that promise. Okay? Um, one way that David could never fail to have a son sitting on the throne is through um, an eternal kind of repeated succession of kings. So you have David and Solomon and Rehoboam and his son and his son and his forever and ever and ever and ever. Right? Um, and of course that would be the way that they would have heard that. Um or they could, it could be the way, surprisingly, counterintuitively, the way the New Testament looks at it. Which is, um, you could have one person who never dies, right, that holds it continuously uh, forever. Um, what's interesting here is that in the um, verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. Right? There's this this statement in the, the covenant with uh, David. And what's been noted um, by certain commentators is that there's this, what's come to be known as the covenant formula. We find it all throughout the Old Testament. It says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Right? Um, what he's saying, is, uh, some have noted that there's these parallel, this is parallel between those statements that kind of lead you to believe that the king becomes kind of the crystallization, the ultimate representative of the people. So the corporate way of stating it is, I will be uh, your God and you will be my people. The way of stating that to an individual is, I will be your father and you will be a son to me. Right? Um, this is another way of looking at this whole idea of federal headship or covenant representation. Um, the king is the representative of the nation. Um, so now to this little chart here. This was uh, based on something I got from an author by the name of Graham Goldsworthy. And he puts it in almost every one of his books. And I found it very helpful. A little history of Israel here. More time passes between creation and the, the split of the kingdoms than everything here. But just for the purposes of seeing things. We've been talking about this point here. right? So you can go back to Noah and Abraham and Moses. And you have Adam and Eve here. After um, the death of David and um, his son Solomon comes to the throne. And essentially you can have, um, you can almost break up Solomon's reign into three sections. The first one, this he's kind of unwise and he makes kind of rash decisions. And um, this is when the Lord appears to him and says, ask him for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And him, Solomon recognizing his own inadequacies says, um, I need wisdom to rule your people. Right? He has a good God-centered understanding that the king is to rule under the ultimate reign of, of Yahweh. And uh, that's when God says, okay, I'm going to give you wisdom like no one's ever had before. And because you didn't ask for all these other things, silver and gold, I'm going to give you that too. Right? So that the second half of uh, the second of the third, uh, second third of Solomon's reign is marked by this, this godly wisdom and right? the desire to build the tabernacle and, and the temple and implementing that. Um, and then the third one is kind of this downward spiral right? in the process of he slowly um, begins to fall into the very trap that Deuteronomy 17 warned against and multiplying uh, wives and multiplying wealth and multiplying horses and fighting men and weapons. Right? Exactly what any other engineers think king would do. And the process of multiplying wives is normally done for political allegiances, right? 
Uh, if I want to establish peace between Israel and Egypt, I marry the Pharaoh's daughter. So now we're family. It's kind of like extending the kingdom. And he marries all these people. He has essentially a thousand women. I believe it's 300 wives and 700 concubines, or vice versa. Um, he has a thousand women at his disposal. Some of them, who knows if you ever saw some of them. Um, they were just kind of like, again, political um, uh, pawns just in this overall plan. And um, these foreign wives, right, these, these daughters of the serpent, if you will, these, these other pagans, they swayed his heart away from the Lord. So while he's building the tabernacle, I mean, building the temple on one end, he's also building these little shrines for false gods for his wives. So you have this kind of commingling, again, it's between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Um, and um, his heart was kind of led astray and to the point where at the end of his life, the Lord says, You've been unfaithful to me, and I'm going to take the kingdom out of your hand. But, because I'm not going to break my covenant with David, right? David will always have a kingdom, will always have a king sitting on the throne, I'm not going to take away all the, the, uh, the tribes from you. I'm going to take away most of the tribes for you. And um, so, what actually winds up happening is that the split of the kingdom, you have two, king, two in the south and ten tribes in this split shortly after Solomon's death under the reign of his son Rehoboam. Right. Um, and you have the word of the Lord saying it's going to happen before Solomon's death and then you have in um, I believe in the second Kings the playing out of this story where you learn how it happened from the ground up. Right? It's very stupid decisions, etc. But it was the Lord's doing where he split the kingdom. Right? And the, the promise essentially here is in Judah. Remember we looked at that through Genesis? Right? See the woman Genesis 3.15 is then filtered through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And out of all of Jacob's sons comes through Judah, that the scepter will never depart from Judah. And so uh, this promise for this serpent crusher of Genesis 3.15 is in Judah. But they only have two of the, they only have two of the uh, tribes. And I can't remember if it was Simeon, those little small tribes just kind of connected with Judah. Um, but the majority of them said, we have nothing to do with David in this house. Okay. Um, you can read about that in Second Chronicles 10, um, the decisions that Rehoboam makes. and um, They just say, we're going to have nothing to do with David. We're, just, we're going to submit ourselves on the Jeroboam, and he'll be, our, he'll be our king, he'll be our leader. And it's during this time of the split that we find um, this kind of zigzagging. Um, the way Kings tells the story is they'll say, they'll give you one story in the north, and then when that story comes to an end, they'll talk, and then they'll move on to a story of a king from the south, and you keep going on and on and on. But throughout this entire history here, things just get moved from bad to worse. It's kind of like the book of Judges. Um, they continuously get... The, the north has no righteous kings. Not a one. Right? They all become increasingly idolatrous. Um, the South has a couple. I mean, you can count them on one hand. They only have a couple in, in hundreds of years. But largely, it's a downward, it's, it's this, this downward uh, spiral. To the point where, um, finally, after centuries of patience and long-suffering, the curses of the covenant come upon the people. Right? So just as God, is, God was gracious in planting the people in the land, now he's going to be faithful to the covenant. On the other end, he's going to uproot them from the land. Right? Um, and let's just look in. We can probably close with this. So, uh, Second, Second Chronicles 36. starting verse 15 here. Um, now this is referring to um, the Babylonian exile, and I want to make this distinction. Um, the Lord eventually brings uh, the covenant curse upon the north, but they are taken to exile by the Assyrian, uh, this, the, the world power at the time, uh, 722 BC. Assyria comes, and they're just deported, taken out of the land, they're deported, they're scattered, and there is never any kind of unified return into the land. 
There may have been individuals here or there, families, but there's never any kind of unified return to the land. Whenever you ever hear anybody talk about the, the lost tribes of Israel, that's what they're referring to. Right? Um, this is never any unified return. And um, not too long after, uh, 586 B.C., Assyria is no longer the major player, the major world player. It's now Babylon. And God uses Babylon as the instrument by which he poured out his covenant justice upon um, the southern kingdom. There's a little bit of delay, a little bit of mercy there. But um, eventually, um, they're also deported to Babylon. So when you find things like the book of Daniel, Daniel's in Babylon, um, Ezekiel's in Babylon, etc. Um, but there is this return there is a, a bit of a return. There's several actual deportations. The final one where the, the, the temples destroyed, the, the walls destroyed the cities in 586. And eventually you have a, a, a return, this remnant returns into the land under uh, Joshua, and, I'm sorry, under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. But, um, so, we're focusing here. Right? Because this is, this is where we should be keeping our eyes on the south, basically. Um, 36.15 The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them, that is the people, through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, um, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was roused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came about. That is the next major world power. The land enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Jeremiah says you're going to go into exile to Babylon for 70 years. Um, and notice there where it says it, the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. That's another way of saying all those uh, Sabbaths that they didn't give the land in the year of Jubilee accrued. <laughs> and then they got, God cashed it then during the exile. Mm. So it's interesting though that you, what you have here, as horrible as that sounds, is another demonstration of God's covenant faithfulness. Because when you read Deuteronomy 28, it's like I said, it's not in the fine print, it's right there. It's about two to three times longer than the section on the blessings for obedience. So he made this extremely clear. He said this, I will bless you, I will continue to show myself a deliverer to you if you obey and you show covenant love towards me and faithfulness. Um, but if you don't, these things are going to befall you. Um, so now when we come back next week, we're going to um, essentially take a slight detour because um, the way I've been covering this is essentially talking about the story. Okay? We're going to cover briefly, uh, the next theme is enlightenment. We just talk about the wisdom literature. Right? Because when, you, when you're talking about the story, it's easy to say, okay, well, Psalms and Proverbs don't click very neatly into the section. So skip over it, and, and that's always been a temptation for me. Um, but I, I do want to at least cover and kind of show some themes in what we've talked about and show how they kind of play into the overall story. And then we're going to talk about um, uh, eschatology, the last, which is a fancy word, theological word, normally meaning uh, discussing the last days. But we're going to be talking about essentially Old Testament eschatology. What were they looking forward to? Okay, what were the expectations? What were the promises and the offerings that God made through the prophets to his people? Because what we'll come to realize is New Testament reality, what's happening in the New Testament of Jesus, is the, uh, the inauguration, the first fruits of all these things that the, that the Old Testament is looking forward to. And so that's what we'll discuss a little bit next week. Any uh, closing questions with that? No? Okay, well, let's close with prayer. Um, 
Father, again, we thank you for this time, Lord, and just pray, Father, that um, all these diagrams and all this would be helpful to your uh, sons and daughters here, Lord. And we just pray that um, you would help us to understand all Scripture as one unified narrative, Father, that uh, that finds this fulfillment in Jesus Christ, Lord. And we just pray that you would prepare our hearts, Lord, now for those who are going to worship, Lord, to um, sing your praise and to learn about the deep truths of our uh, faith, Father. And we pray all these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Amen.